I'm just going to dive in. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Guys, it's time to come come to terms with our anger. It is time to come to terms with your anger. Now, about the time that I had just started writing the sermon, and I wrote this sentence, my wife walked into my office And she said, how's the sermon going? And I said, well, I wrote this one sentence. It's time to come to terms with your anger. And in genuine Schmeagel voice, she said, it burns us. (laughs) And before we actually get into this passage, I want you to know that this passage hurts me. If there is a genuinely difficult and long-term wrestle with sin in my own heart, it is with anger. From before I was a Christian, where it defined my everyday life, to my years as an immature Christian, where it ruined friendships and compromised jobs, to getting married and growing in marriage and the many occasions where it could have toppled my marriage single-handedly. I have wrestled with anger for many, many years. I have also seen victory in this area and I'm still seeing victory in this area. And because Tara too has struggled with this for a long time, we teach each other by the grace of God and the might of the Spirit. So if having struggled with the thing for decades might qualify someone to talk about it, hey, you're in luck, guys. You are in luck. If you want a personal anecdote after personal anecdote, I could do that, but I don't think you do, so I won't. Okay. Um, I'm going to divide this uh, sermon into four parts. We're going to talk about the passage, then we're going to talk about the progression of the passage, and then we're going to talk about the point of the passage, and then we're going to set a plan, all right? Passage, progression, point, and plan. And did you notice that alliteration? You're welcome. Worked really hard on that. Okay, so let's get into the passage. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are going to start in verse 21. All right. You have heard that it was said 
to those of old. All right, what is Jesus talking about? You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, throughout this section of the sermon, Jesus says things like this. You've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard. And I want to talk about what's going on here. Now, the bulk of these references come straight from the law of Moses. Okay? And so the primary and initial referent that you should be thinking about is the people of Israel who heard these words when Moses was teaching them at Sinai. Now, that's the initial reference. You've heard that it was said of those of old, but there's actually some more going on here. Because when Jesus says, you have heard, I think he's meaning things more than just this is what the Bible says. And the reason I think that is because throughout this sermon, he's actually correcting a misunderstanding of the law. So it's not merely that Jesus is saying the the, the Old Testament says, or they wouldn't have used those terms, the law says X. He's also saying the way you have read the law is X, and I'm going to teach you a better reading of X. Does that make sense? So when you, when you see throughout the sermon, you have heard, I want you to not just be thinking the Old Testament says, or the law says, or it says in Exodus. I want you to be thinking people have been misunderstanding what Jesus is about to point to, and he's going to teach them the better way of understanding that thing. All right? So there's two things going on. He's pointing to their sacred texts, and he's saying, This is what you've grown up hearing, rightly so, because this is the Word of God. And he's also saying, this is how you've understood that, wrongly so, because in your hardness of heart, you are twisting the law. Does that make sense? Okay. So, you've heard, do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, this is all throughout the law. This notion that Murder is wrong and that murder is culpable and that murder's judgment is, is death, right? That, that's all throughout the law. Starting in Genesis 9, it's made explicit in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And we see implicit throughout the law this expectation that the righteous judges throughout the communities of Israel would would bring about the judgment required, all right? So I, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to read these passages, but, but start in Genesis 9, where we have the expectation set by God that anyone who takes the blood of man, from that man, blood will be taken, right? The life-for-life life notion that the image of God that is, that is being born by human beings is, is, is mega-important, It is huge, and you don't take that. And if you take that, you will lose your own life. That's the expectation throughout the law. And this is what Jesus is pointing to. And it's not only that he's pointing to this as one rule, okay? This is one rule of a dozen that he's going to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think it's an accident that he starts here, because murder is the evidence for the people of Israel that sin wasn't just a one-time deal, right? That sin wasn't just a mistake made in the garden that has nothing to do with the rest of our lives because less than one paragraph after Adam and Eve are are cast out of the garden, 
you see Cain murdering Abel, right? So from the very outset, murder is the evidence that sin is cracking the world in half, right? So, so to start with murder, I think, is very appropriate, not only because murder is something that has been from the outset strictly forbidden among the people of Israel, but also because murder is the evidence for them that sin has worked its way into every corner of their lives. Okay, so do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, I'm expecting that when Jesus says this, everybody around him is going, uh-huh, yeah, we don't murder here, and, and we, we, we kill murderers, we, we execute murderers, that's what we do. That's right, Jesus, keep preaching. All right, but he doesn't stop there. Listen to this. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, so almost immediately, Jesus starts to correlate the actions of murder and of insult and of slander with this root, right? This root of anger seems to be closely related to all of these manifestations, all of this outworking, which is something as slight in their eyes as insult, something as, you know, maybe slightly dramatic as slander, and something as as horrific in their eyes as murder. Jesus takes all of these outward appearances, all these outward manifestations, all of this outward outworking, uh, and he he relates it to this one thing, which is anger. And then he makes a statement about that one thing and how it is culpable for judgment, all right? So before I shift into the, the consequences of anger, and Jesus says there are consequences of anger, and I'm just going to let that sit there for a little while because that is terrifying because we are an angry people. But before he actually shifts to the consequences of anger, he gives some, some for instances, right? All right, so it says, it says, whoever insults his brother. Now, the language behind this is functionally the equivalent of calling your brother an idiot, all right? Calling your brother a moron. Um, actually, there's some etymological evidence that moron is, is derived from this word, right? Um, but functionally, this... So, so there's this situation of anger, which Christ says is worthy of judgment, all right? But he doesn't give necessarily in that phrase any, any sort of what to look out for, how this might evidence. But immediately he shifts to this insult situation. And, and you can just imagine somebody in anger leveling an insult. And it's not like super crazy curse word, everybody in the room goes, <gasps> right? This is minor bad word stuff. Um, I was talking to my daughters about a movie, and I heard uh, Elizabeth say to her aunt, oh, uh, Logan can't watch that because there's bad words in it. And I was like, there's not bad words in that movie. And she said, yeah, yeah, this, this guy, he says, I hate you. Okay, like, okay, well, that's like a minor bad word, right? Like, that's, that's a word we don't level very often, but when we, when it's leveled, it's not something that shakes the room, 
right? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, uh, uh, it, we're talking about somebody cutting you off, slamming on your brakes and say, what an idiot, right? That's the situation we're talking about. It is a relatively minor insult cast in anger. And then he shifts his attention to this you fool language, all right? Now, what's significant about that, that verbal shift from this r- relatively minor insult to this, this, uh, this, this proclamation that you're a fool or this leveled accusation that you're a fool is because you shift from insult to slander here. The dynamics of this word are that people who heard you level this accusation heard you suggest that this person is, is, uh, is immature spiritually. And this person is, is, uh, is, is in his immaturity is working out foolishness, right? It's, it's a slightly weightier accusation because it has to do with this person's character. All right. Which is why I, I kind of associate it with slander. All right. It's, it's, it's an accusation uh, leveled in anger that has to do with this person's core character. So, so Jesus says simply, anger is worthy of judgment. And then he says, he says, insult is worthy of judgment. And then he says, slander is worthy of judgment. Well, what does he mean when he says worthy of judgment? Oh, should have, should have gone there first. Okay. Um, before I go there, I want, I want to highlight an ang- so Jesus describes these three situations. Somebody's got an angry heart. Somebody issues an insult in a fit of anger. And somebody issues slander in a fit of anger. And before we go on to what that means as far as judgment, let me highlight that we've all been in these situations. All right, we have all been in these situations. Um, raise your hand if you've ever been angry. Raise your hand. If you, right? Okay, now, now listen. This is where we start to get honest. Raise your hands if you've ever insulted someone in your anger. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, raise your hand if in your anger you've ever leveled a character accusation. Right? Okay, I won't make you raise your hand, but, but I want you to smirk if that character accusation has been against your spouse and if it, if it has happened in the last three days. Okay? <laughs> Back and thank you. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus isn't, he's not searching for these dramatic and exceptional situations to highlight anger. Like the, these, these situations happen to everyone. We are the, the nefarious actors in all three of these scenarios. All right, now. What does it mean, liable to judgment? Right? He says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Okay, that these, these words, I think, and most people think, are references to Deuteronomy 16, 18. So when the law was given, it wasn't just given to the community without any expectation that they'd keep it and wasn't just given to the community without any expectation of enforcement, right? The law was given to the community of Israel and then there was this this mandate that every community select for themselves officers and judges 
to righteously judge the people. So every community had a council. And this council would evaluate in situations where there was sin, how to respond to that sin. So these, these were the judges of Israel. These were the people in every community who, who uh, would, would watch the community and when, when instances of sin or offense would happen, they would judge who was the party at fault and, and what the consequence would be. And there's this mandate that they would do it righteously. Now, it's become pretty corrupted by Jesus' time. But think Sanhedrin. Right? You see the Sanhedrin judging Christ. You see the Sanhedrin judging Peter for having proclaimed the gospel. This, this is a, a distorted, a twisted picture of this, this mandate that every community have its own council of judges who decree righteously. But from the beginning, those judges were just a, a foreshadow. They were just a picture of the righteous judgment of God. All right? And the reason, I think, that we can look at these words, judgment and counsel, and think not of legal uh, situations that might result in fees or consequences, but rather think of God's judgment is because there's no way a human court in a local council can issue the verdict of hell. Okay? There's no way. So even, even if... The referent was this human council. Everybody who's hearing these words understood that, that this judgment that he's talking about is the judgment of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. And, and the judgment, the judgment, not just, by the way, for the accusation of you fool, but the judgment for murder and anger the judgment for insult and slander is the same. Hell. Hell is the judgment. Anger is as culpable as murder. And the penalty for anger and insult and slander is the same as the penalty for murder, which is hell. Okay. I want to repeat one central sentence. Because I don't think we take it seriously. Anger is as culpable as murder. I don't think you can read Jesus' words without stepping away with that interpretation. Anger is as culpable as murder. And the judgment for anger is hell. Okay, guys. Okay. What does that mean for you when you're angry? Terrifying things. Things that should usher your heart to repentance. Things that should usher your heart to desperately fall on your face before God. Right? Anger is as culpable as murder. And the penalty for anger, insult, and slander is the same as the penalty for murder, which is hell. Now this is the first time in the New Testament that hell is mentioned. I want to get just quickly... Make a make an, a, a side note on, on what what is this thing hell what is what is what is he talking about? Um, so this word is translated in the ESV the hell of fire, the hell of fire. Uh, I think the phrase is Gehenna, and Gehenna means 
the valley of Hinnom. All right, well, what is, what is that? What is Jesus referring to? Well, just give you a little bit of uh, uh, historical reference. There was a valley in Israel named Hinnom. And in this valley, the god Moloch was, was worshipped. And the way this particular god was worshipped, that is, by the way, evidence of the despicable nature of idolatry, children were murdered in his name and burned. He was a god who preferred human sacrifice. And Solomon, as well as several other kings, sacrificed human beings to Moloch. Now, when the people repented from this idolatry, in order to to prohibit the Israelites from ever again using the Valley of Hinnom to worship Moloch in human sacrifice, they made it a giant garbage pit. All right? They made it a giant refuse pit. And all the people of Israel would take their garbage if they lived nearby and they'd dump it in this pit and they'd set it on fire. So at any point, you could, middle of the night, during the day, at any point, you could go to this place and you would find filthy, stinking refuse lit on fire and the smoke of that refuse rising to the air. It was a horrible picture. Now that is a word picture that Christ uses often in Matthew to explain what judgment, what the judgment of God is against sin. What does the wrath of God against sin look like? It looks like Gehenna. Now, you need to know two things. First, you need to know that any time that Christ uses word pictures to explain things, it's going to be bigger and accelerated and, and, and that's just a shadow of the substance. All right, so you think that sounds bad. It's much worse. All right, this was just a word picture to get people thinking in the direction of what the wrath of God looks like. And then two, we're not given much detail. Not yet. We're not given much detail. So I don't want you to get sidetracked on, on what, well, what is this and who, who goes there and what, what, like, what is, what is, what, what does this play out? How does this play out? We will continue to talk about this throughout Matthew and throughout Revelation, by the way. So, uh, if you have questions about hell, you're welcome to ask them now, or you could sit on them and just we can work through work through those passages in time. Okay, anger is as culpable as murder, and the penalty for anger, insult, and slander is the same as the penalty for murder, and that's hell. Okay. Okay, I just gave you a whole lot of pretty strong language and warning about anger. Let me give you a caveat here. Not all anger is wicked. All right? Not all anger is wicked. Do you know how I know? Because you keep reading in Matthew, and you will find Jesus angry. In fact, that language, he, he says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus himself 
levels that accusation against his enemy. So what's going on here? What's going on? Okay, there is a category for righteous anger. But Jesus doesn't touch on that. Okay? Jesus doesn't touch on that. It would be pastorally, it would be pastorally irresponsible of me to, to soften this text by saying, hey, hey, here's all the ways that you can be angry and feel okay with it. That's not what this passage is doing. This passage is looking at your angry heart and it is addressing it with warnings. I don't think Jesus is interested in making that distinction here. And I think he avoids that because 99% of the time, your anger is not righteous. And 99% of the time, you think it is. All right? And that's a slightly hyperbolic. Slightly hyperbolic. But most of the time, you don't need to even think about that category. Because even if 8% of your anger is righteous indignation, 92% of your anger is violence and vengeance ushered from a wicked heart, right? Or if not a wicked heart, a heart influenced by idolatry or sin. Right? So, so, yes, there is that thing, and it is all throughout the Scriptures, but Jesus doesn't take His time to talk about that right now, so I'm not going to take too much more time talking about that. Okay, okay. So Jesus says that anger is as culpable as murder and that all of these outward manifestations of anger, insults, slander, murder, whatever, they're, they're rooted in anger and anger itself earns the judgment of hell. So what do you do about that? Let's keep reading. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Here's what I think is going on. And we're going to see this implicitly in this text, but, but probably before the end of the year, we're going to see this explicitly in a text just on the next page, if your Bible's like mine. Let me read it to you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see that? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And listen to Jesus' explanation. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The way you relate to people has a lot to do with the way you relate to God and the way God relates back to you. That is really important. Don't pretend you're right with God if you're not right with your brother don't pretend you're right with God if you're not desperately pursuing reconciliation with your brother. Look, your work of reconciliation is evidence of your having been 
reconciled. And to the degree that your life isn't patterned by the work of reconciliation, we have evidence that you're not advantaging from the work of reconciliation. Do you, you see what I'm saying? If God has bent down and forgiven your trespasses, and if He has shown you mercy, you do not go and throttle your brother. We just talked about this. Christ says, look, if you're even in the act of worship and you realize your brother has something against you, you stop. You don't even, act, don't even offer that sacrifice. You go fix things. You go fix things. Okay. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Come to terms quickly. The language here is immediate. Right now. Stop what you're doing right now. And I feel so ardently that you should stop what you're doing right now that if you right now are thinking about how you're not reconciled with the brother, leave Leave right now. You're not going to offend me. That, that's how immediate and pressing the language is in this passage. You don't get to pretend like you're right with God if you're not right with your brother. Walking in enmity with your brother says things about your relationship to God. So go. Don't waste a moment in pursuing reconciliation. In fact, your judgment hinges upon it. Listen to this language lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Remember, all the judgment language is pointing forward to the judgment of God. This is another word picture. This is another word picture. Truly, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You go reconcile right now. Right now. Reconcile as if your life depended on it. Living at enmity with your brothers is a testimony to your enmity with God. Now listen, it's a good time to talk about what does he mean by brothers? What does Jesus mean by brothers? This is the language he employs from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to tell you what all the other commentaries say. It's almost the same thing. Um... What I think is going on here is that our responsibility to live reconciled with other Christians is primary. Is primary. You don't get to live in a state of of enmity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is evidence that you are not in Christ. Right? If you're living in a perpetual state of enmity and anger and frustration with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then that's evidence that, that maybe you're not benefiting from the ministry of reconciliation, right? So, so this, I think, brother's language is primarily pointed to, towards the church. All throughout Matthew, he's using language about family to refer to the, to the community of believers. Us. Us. However, that language isn't restricted 
It's not restrictive. In other words, you're not allowed to feel permission to live at enmity with your neighbor. We're going to get there with a whole bunch of other passages in Matthew. So yes, the first referent point is the church, the believing community, but that is just an example of how you should relate to the rest of the world. Okay? And that's generally almost every commentary landed here that I read. Brother's language has a first initial referent point to the church, but it isn't restrictive to the church. We should relate to the whole world this way. Okay. Okay. So that's the passage. I want to talk about the progression of the passage, and this is going to slightly reference last week. All right, so what's interesting about this passage is it starts with the prison bars. You remember that the law of Moses was written to be prison bars for those who were enslaved to sin, right? There's, there are laws written strictly to keep the people of Israel from being as wicked as they could possibly be, and this is one of those prison bars, and that's where he starts. You've heard it said... Do not murder, right? And that, that, those are prison bars for those enslaved to sin, right? They're going to be nasty to one another. They're going to be angry. They're going to be slanderous. But, but this, this, these prison bars are keeping them from being as, as violent and vengeful as they could possibly be. And that's where he starts. And then he shifts to the boundaries of the free, right? Like we have been freed from captivity to sin, And so Christ opens our eyes. He teaches us the boundaries around which we are, we are to thrive and flourish. He says, you don't go there. You don't, you see that anger? You see, you see anger? You see, you see insult and slander? That's not where we go. Okay? So he shifts from prison bars to these broader boundaries that prohibit the, the community of faith from, from behaving in certain ways to one another. But that's not where he ends. Right? You can imagine that. We actually see this in the next paragraph. Sometimes Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, don't, don't lust after... You, you see a woman and lust after her? That's adultery in your heart. And then he stops. But here, he keeps going. Right? He doesn't stop. And he could have, it seems, just say, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, don't be angry. But he keeps going. Listen, the righteous vision of the law. Be reconciled to your brother, okay? So Christ's perspective shifts from, from this prison bar to, to the greater boundaries, and then it literally turns around to the righteous trajectory of the law. And this is what I think is going on. I think Jesus is saying, you are facing, my brothers and sisters, my people, you are facing in the wrong direction. If you want to defeat anger in your life, Stop thinking in terms of prison bars and boundaries and start thinking in terms of proactive reconciliation. Right? He says, you keep asking where the line is. You keep asking me where the line is so I can get as close to the line as possible. I'm telling you to turn around. R run full speed the other direction. Right? Run, run full speed towards reconciliation and anger will, will, will fall apart. All right, so what's the point of this passage? What's the point? The point, I think, is that the root of anger is as culpable as the fruit of anger, and the penalty 
for anger is hell. And Christ gives us the antidote to anger, which is reconciliation. And the work of reconciliation should be your most immediate and pressing concern. The antidote to anger is reconciliation. And the work of reconciliation should be your most immediate and pressing concern. Okay. Okay. I have a plan written down. This is similar to the plan that I've created in my own life to get rid of anger that Tara and I have talked about for years, but it, it's, it's also broader. I want to invite everyone in this church to join in the mission to crush anger forever. I want us to be a reconciled people, and I don't want any of our friendships to be disrupted by anger. So I think this is how we can get there, or at least part of how we can get there. First, Label your anger. Here's what I mean. Label your anger. When you're angry, admit to yourself that you're angry. And don't use other less valuable words. Stop saying I'm frustrated. If you like me, I'll say, I was just fussy. Oh, come on. Come on. We're not toddlers. Right? By the way, some of the angriest people on earth, toddlers. When you find yourself angry about anything, make, make a note to yourself. I am angry right now, or I was angry 20 minutes ago, or that, that fit, I, I, that, 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 that argument, that was driven by my anger. All right, Call it what it is. You've now heard Christ's indictment against anger, call it what it is and take note of it. If you have to create an angry journal, do it, okay? I was angry because a guy cut me off. I was angry because my wife said this. I was angry because whatever. Just write it down because... You need to identify patterns of anger in your life. You start writing it down, you're going to start seeing that this anger is a pattern. Anger harbors in your heart. We are the least of these. Saved by grace. The picture that Christ gives when He talks about His people is one of wretchedness, weakness, depravity, wickedness, and He chose to save us in that state, which means that we should feel totally okay about admitting that we still have some habits from that state. See what I mean? So so label your anger and then see the patterns of anger in your heart. All right. Third, stop justifying your anger. Stop it. It doesn't help anybody, by the way. Like, say, for instance, you do have 8% of your anger, which is righteous indignation, right? What you're doing is you're justifying the whole of it, which, by the way, Christ says is deserving of hell, with that what? That sliver? That, like, tiny, itty-bitty sliver of righteous anger? Stop. Stop. If you, you will. I just did it this morning. 
I just did it this morning in the car. Like, make efforts to, to say, oh, I was just, I would, here's why. If you hadn't, if they hadn't, stop. Stop. Ask your closest friends or your spouse. Ask them to call it out when you're justifying. You don't need, by the way, if you're in Christ, you don't need to justify. You've already been justified. Okay? So quit it. Just just crush the instinct to justify. Fourth, use the Bible to understand your anger. Right? The Bible has a lot to say about anger. And it will help you understand why you're angry and where your anger is headed and what your anger has to do with your relationship with God and what your anger has to do with your relationship with other people. I'm going to encourage you to start in James 4. James 4 changed my life. Why are you quarreling? Because you want what you don't have. Did you ask God for it? If you did ask God for it and he chose not to give it to you, it's because you'd spend it on your passions. Do you trust God? No, you don't. And the reason I know why is because you're murdering your brother because you don't want what you have. That logic is biblical. And that logic will free you from patterns of anger. Make sense? James. The whole book, really. James 1.20, James 4. Go look at James. Dwell in it. Spend some time. And associate those patterns with your own behavior. Right? This This is how we learn. This is how we... We're freed. The Word of God frees His people from patterns of sin. Leverage the Word of God. Amen? Okay. Fifth, this is heavy. Recognize that anger interrupts your relationship with God. Christ is not bashful about talking about your relationship with others interrupting your good relationship with Him. Terrifying that God will send you away from prayer. He will send you away from worship to go reconcile with your brother. But it's true. It's true. You live at enmity with your bride or your husband. You live at enmity with your friends. God will send you away with from what otherwise could have been a sweet and peaceful time with him. He will say, go reconcile. When you see that, when you see that dynamic at play, if you love God and if you yearn for his company, you're going to do everything you can to fix things with your brother. Okay? Make sense? Okay. If your anger has disrupted friendships, chase after reconciliation right now. Literally as soon as we're done here. Actually right now, right now, if you, if you, if you have the guts to do it. Um, the, the language of this passage, it pushes you to immediate reconciliation. Um, so if, if your anger has broken things with somebody, you're thinking about them right now probably, You go call them. The gospel has everything to say to reconcile you to. And it looks like I am a sinner and in my sin, I break relationships. But God has restored my relationship in mercy 
And so I'm coming to you and I'm admitting that my sin has crushed our good relationship and I'm pleading with you for forgiveness and mercy, right? Just preach the gospel to your friends in reconciliation attempts. And by the way, they're not always going to work. That's not your responsibility. You have the ministry of reconciliation. You don't have the sovereignty of God to change hearts, right? But you have to be faithful to the ministry of reconciliation. Okay. Similar, if someone has something against you, chase reconciliation. Now, you may have, by the way, done nothing wrong. You may have done nothing wrong, but that's, that doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you. Such an interesting turn. Like from, from your anger, your anger, your anger. Somebody has something against you, right? Like as if you should be concerned about the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, this, this, this probably is a thing. In family, it's probably a thing. In coworkers, it's probably a thing. In friendships. Think hard. Plead with the Lord to give you eyes to see where someone has something against you and then, and then be a minister of reconciliation. I think that's what this passage means. That, these last three points mean basically the same thing. Be willing to stop everything to save a friendship. One of the translations of reconciliation here, um, be reconciled to your brother. One of the translations is make friends. It's a more literal translation. I like it though. Make friends. Go make friends. Seems like something you tell your child, right? But it's true of us. Go make friends. Be willing to stop everything to save a friendship. There's no amount of productivity. There's no amount of, of uh, service that, that rises to the level of importance where you can just keep ignoring that you've got a broken friendship. Just go, go fix that. Okay? Okay. And then finally, let's make it our church's mission to chase reconciliation and crush anger. If this is true... And if we're willing to become ministers of reconciliation in very real ways, if we're willing to together corporately recognize that anger crushes friendships and corporately recognize our, our uh, call to restore those re- uh, relationships with reconciliation, we will become defined by restored relationships because of the work of the, of the Lord and the work of the Spirit. And that's what I want. I want to be a people who doesn't remember what it was like to walk around angry. Amen? Okay. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are the one who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. By way of your power, and your mercy, and your grace, and your spirit, your word can affect change in our hearts and in our lives. I ask that you would do it mightily, powerfully. Change the way we relate to people. Crush anger in our hearts and make us ministers of reconciliation. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.